You're listening to Brute North's Pirate Radio, where we walk backwards into the future. I am as always your host, Erik Storsen, raised among the Rugians north of the Germanic Sea, but living among strangers in a strange land. I come to you, my fellow necromancers, from New Jorvik, Vinland, in the year 989 after Norway's Christianization, 989 years before... Well, probably best not to think too much about that. Friends, I must fully admit that today's episode is a lazy one, as I prepare to visit my Rugian homeland where the sun scarcely sets at the end of its long, breezy nights. A little over a year ago, I participated at a conference come art exhibit come rave, organized by the Canadian-Norwegian artist and curator Aaron Sexton at Lydgalleria in Bergen, Norway, on the subject of the Noosphere. If you don't know what the noosphere is, try to think of this. Imagine an automatic door. It opens and shuts by the power of its motor, say, I don't know, by the pull of a mechanical arm, perhaps. What is the force that allows this to happen? Well, some might say it's purely physics. And physics might describe why something works, but not why something works in accordance with intent. It seeks to point out a natural force that allows the door to exist in the first place. Is it right to isolate the physical movement of the mechanical arm from the mind that created it, for its purpose, or how people interact with it? In our case, no. All of this belongs to some overarching category, which we may boil down to one single lump sum, which is called the noosphere, the sphere of the mind. Erin curated a wonderful event that brought together a wide range of strange minds from the intersection of musicology and neurology, brainwave research, UFOs, and radio technology, leading to interdisciplinary conversations that I could hardly have imagined outside of some cyberpunk graphic novel. The essay that I will read for you today is my introductory chapter to the Noospherics conference book. I'll be linking to the publisher in the show notes. This is the Antenna on the Holy Mountain, Noospheric Meditations on the Norse Cargo Cult. The Noosphere is conventionally defined as the sphere of human thought. 
My first appointment with the Noosphere came through the medium of Erin Sexton herself, initially in conversation and then via her art. Before then, I had no idea what it really was. It had never occurred to me that such a term existed, but now that it had been introduced into my vocabulary, I find myself wondering where this strange term had been hiding all of these years. Regular academic diction advises us to drop flowery language, since it is generally regarded unwise to complicate things that can be described in plain and simple terms. But sometimes it feels appropriate to stray from the straight and narrow path, to allow yourself to be immersed and lose yourself for a while. It is not that the word can't be broken down to a simplified definition. I already said that the noosphere is the sphere of human thought. But that doesn't say much about what exactly those five words actually mean. If you think it seems backwards to describe something by what it is not, then you would obviously be entirely right, but please indulge me. It is not the strangest thing that we will touch upon in this essay. To my understanding, the noosphere is not quite the quantifiable collection of consciousnesses in the sense of a list or, say, a spreadsheet. It is not a handful of marbles strewn across a floor or a bunch of unconnected dots. It thumbs its nose at the insular atomist who sees the world as nothing more than a big collection of individual cells and arbitrary chemical reactions. Quite contrary, I understand the noosphere to be a matrix, constantly spouting memetic information and feeding those memes back into itself. It is nothing short of the collective strata of reality in which consciousness, as we know it, is permitted to exist. And we are all woven into it. We don't have a choice in the matter. It is actually contagious, though we can certainly influence, even manipulate it. It is not a governed institution. As such, the term presents sentience not mainly as a feature of the individual, but as a facet of a more complex system. It is quite compelling that the concept was first manifested not in one single mind, but the joint genius of three individuals. This happened less than a hundred years ago, but its contents feel timeless. The noosphere, as observed by us, its human beacons, seems presupposed by the biosphere, which in turn supports itself on the geosphere. When we gaze into space, it is evident that geological processes do not spontaneously result in biological life. Likewise, it is not self-evident that biological life should give rise to consciousness, if in fact consciousness is as tied to biological life as we tend to think. This notion may soon enough be challenged by the emergence of more complex forms of artificial intelligence. When Erin uses her art installations to bounce radio waves off the ionosphere, we should realize that the ionosphere was not created to accommodate radio, yet it sustains it. It is an odd quality of the noosphere that it manipulates the world by binding our seemingly intangible inner lives to the tangible physicality of ontological reality. Wherever we turn, there is the noosphere like a tarp stretched out, reaching as far as we can see. It never diminishes. When we crane our necks to peek over the edge, the horizon stretches even further. We try to punch the wall, and yet the wall bends around our fist. 
I don't think it's too kooky to say that nature possesses a certain innate intelligence and that the performance of this intelligence has severe long-term effects on the universe itself. Fractals, chemical reactions, the elegant simplicity of single-celled organisms and the growth patterns of trees all act in accordance with some internal yet simultaneously external logic. All of these bounce around the noosphere too, whether as objects or subjects. These simple yet essential natural intelligences could have been all there was, but they are not. Consciousness has not only occurred, but developed, sprung forth from the cosmic womb, nursed by the eons and suckled by the elements. How wonderful! Rejoice! Thank you for inviting me to this party. As this strange substance of mind seems to flow so gracefully through the apparently rational universe, could it be that consciousness is some sort of property of matter itself? That our minds are merely one certain articulation of it? Are you so sure that we have this consciousness? Are you so sure that we have this consciousness thing all figured out? Many people believe that our world began as an unconscious and non-experiencing cosmos. The word unconscious seems suggestive of waking up. In a sense, we have. This owes to semantics, of course. We cannot imagine an unconscious and unobservable world any more than we can imagine a color we have never seen. Limited as we are by our own minds and senses, which provide the linguistic and cognitive tools necessary to describe the world. This is often indirect, by necessity, as with art. But even the dead coldness of outer space is graced with our discourse on it. In a sense, this could be considered a colonization of space in its own right. But humans have also learned to go beyond just the reflective the human consciousness has resulted in a highly concrete physical presence, say, in the form of radio waves that are being broadcast into outer space at light speed, both accidentally and deliberately. Our presence is already among the stars, and it will outlast our physical bodies. Technology is secular cult. Aaron's sculptures and installations raise questions about the perceived differences between technology and spirituality. Survival is a common theme in her art, as is the implications of crisis and the ritualized way we cope with it. Among other things, religions are a means of coming to terms with the crisis of living as a biological entity in a physical world that constantly births and decays on top of itself. Just as the body is destroyed by mistreatment, pathology, and old age, the earth itself approaches destruction, with the ample help of consumers such as you and I, one should say. And when religions posit that existence is a pile of fuss and misery, they're not entirely wrong. Spirituality offers refuge, and so do science and technology. Ritual, cult, and mythological traditions are technologies in their own right. Technological enhancements may be considered tools on the path of initiation into cosmic mysteries. Phenomenologically speaking, whether we invest our souls in the devotion of explicit religious idols or venerate seemingly mundane things such as sports teams or even when we pursue our careers, quasi-religious thoughts and ritualistic behaviors are unavoidable features of our personalities. 
Humans are hardwired symbolic thinkers, and though such a notion challenges the preconceived ideas of rational materialist worldviews, magic is all around us, in the sense that reality bends around us when action manifests our intent, hopes, and our dreams. Doesn't the search for extraterrestrial intelligences remind us of distress signals, or perhaps prayers and incantations? What the devotee and the broadcaster really says is, I am here. The hope of being noticed affirms the self, but is also a statement of desire towards communion with some higher truth, whether divine, organic, or synthetic, though evidently mythological and scientific paradigms cannot be scrutinized according to the same criteria. But who is to say that they should? Should we analyze the myth of Adam and Eve according to the principles of natural science? Because only an idiot would surely try. But myths? Yes. Those sacred tales and texts often tell a truth of their own, even among the fart jokes of the Old Norse myths. There lurk perennial and ancient truths. That's something to think about in the cacophony of our age, so full of information and misinformation, cluttering our brains and wrestling for our attention. When a ritual specialist offers a sacrifice to the gods, they are expressing something that is not at its core entirely different from radio broadcasting. Both are expressions of humanity's innate desire to communicate and influence the world around them. People did not let the blood of a thousand sacrificial animals pour into the soil of the ancient north just to amuse themselves or because they didn't know any better. They did so because they were convinced that there was a purpose to it. Time and time again, they did it because such sacrificial gestures seemed to work. Pre-Christian ritual was often an odd mixture of stark and brutal displays of sacrificial violence and festive, alcohol-laced celebration, which no doubt played on the emotions of the participants and invited a carnivalesque mood. Rituals solidify the relationship between humanity and the gods, between people, culture, and nature. There is no need to presuppose the ontological existence of gods. The gods are real enough, whatever we think they are. Even if we are sending broadcasts into space for nobody to hear, even if we are just talking to ourselves, the broadcast still has a purpose. The venture is part of the destination. Archaic societies had wonderfully refreshing ways of seeing the world. This fact, I assume, nobody will doubt, but it's more than just a novelty. I am very concerned about how human modernity is often seen as entirely disconnected from past humanity. The Neolithic Revolution was not televised. We love to badmouth our ancestors, but like anywhere else, going out of one's way to talk ill about somebody usually signals personal insecurities and an overall lack of character. It says more about the hubris of our zeitgeist than it does about technologically primitive societies, and it signals that we are not sincerely curious about ourselves. 200,000 years stand between us and the first anatomically modern humans. We spent 190,000 of those years without agriculture. The first primitive copper tools are mere 8,000 years old. Iron was unheard of prior to the 12th century BC. Barely 3,000 years later, we have taken our first steps towards the stars. But still, 
most of us lack a basic understanding of even the most primitive technologies. In terms of robust, hands-on technological skills, many of us are illiterate. Consider for a moment our ancient predecessors who spent eons gazing up at the Milky Way with no technologies more advanced than flint napping and friction fire. Our ancestors must have considered themselves masters of reality when they first harnessed fire with a bow drill, yet we laugh. We laugh to draw attention away from our own shortcomings, give those tools to any fool on the street, and they'll have no idea what to do with them. Before we learned the secret of making fire, we were truly at the cruel mercy of Mother Nature, stealing fire from the gods, forced to guard it night and day for entire generations, always fearful that the fire would die out. Conversely, we assume that the internet will always be around and that it will always be at our service, that the only thing we need to get by is the latest technological gadget. Right now, the relatively recent technology of radio is slipping through our enlightened fingers, deemed a so-called obsolete technology. Though the internet permits an amazing and today essential exchange of information, why are we so decadently impressed by its complexity? It demands such a massive infrastructure and can so easily be intercepted, tampered with, and hacked. It relies on huge power grids and could easily be obliterated by an electromagnetic pulse from, say, large solar flares or nuclear devices. If such a disaster strikes, it could take a long time to get the web up and running again. The sleek simplicity of radio, on the other hand, requires only a small selection of commonplace materials, with only a simple transmitter, copper wire, and a power source like a conventional 12-volt car battery. With these simple tools, we can run a radio station from just about anywhere, using natural forces to communicate internationally at the speed of light. Much owing to its simplicity, radio is infinitely more robust a technology than the internet, yet people have the audacity to see amateur radio as just another quirky hobby for techie nerds, when in fact their efforts are nothing less than the preservation of fire. Radio technology will, at the snap of a finger, turn from nostalgic pastime to a lifeline in a cataclysmic event. But that might just be too late. Too bad. When Rome falls, so falls the world, and thus passes its glory. What are we but glorified cavemen? Instead of supplementing our know-how, we have traded our basic skills for computers. Looking over our shoulder, we notice that our future has become increasingly threatened by climate change, overpopulation, resource depletion, and weapons of mass destruction. Don't be fooled by the mask of civility. The planet is getting angrier and more volatile by the minute. Every year our destructive potential grows, and yet our survivability decreases. A secular westerner will be very aware that religion has the power to trap people, but they'll have both feet in the grave before it dawns on them that technology can do the same. So much for easier solutions and a carefree life. If and when humanity meets its untimely fate, we might find some reassurance in the fact that we are guaranteed a spectral presence in the universe long after our demise. In the untold future, some extraterrestrial intelligence may find our geological footprint as the Anthropocene will provide undeniable evidence of intelligent life on Earth for millions of years to come. 
and radio waves will still be swooping through space, retaining our mangled signature. If we are lucky, some synthetic intelligence will survive us, carrying a tiny ember of humanity along with it. Humanity, though a central noospheric actor, is not its sole agent. The noosphere reaches from the interactions of single-celled organisms into the levels of utmost abstraction. Yet as far as I can tell, the modern human is entirely alone in pressing the claim that consciousness is a rational and solely human characteristic. But the reality seems to be that no one before the Age of Enlightenment had any problem accepting the notion that the world also consisted of unseen and unknowable intelligences. In archaic societies, the bridge to the transcendent is anchored in past traditions. Customs provided their guiding light. My own vocation is Old Norse philology, that is to say the study of Norse culture, literature and mythology through the primary sources and the language. It is, in a sense, an attempt to establish communication channels with another world. I scanned the texts looking for a frequency, listening, in a way, fantasizing about conversations and portals to past dimensions. The desire to know makes academia nearly a Gnostic pursuit. Though our sources leave much to the imagination, research draws a picture of Norse paganism as a polytheistic religion centered around the correct performance of rituals rather than orthodoxy. Feasts and sacrifices were determined by an astronomical lunisolar calendar and tied in with an inclusive nine-year cycle in which the final year of one cycle is simultaneously the first year of the next, which determined the intervals of bigger religious festivals. Thanks to research, we know enough about this system to follow the sacred nine-year interval if we wanted to. Neo-pagans often try and no doubt succeed in creating genuine religious experiences and a sense of community with something greater than themselves. But ultimately, I have to ask, what sets such beliefs apart from the cargo cults of Melanesia, who manifest the sacred and left behind foreign technologies? If the past is indeed a foreign country, as some claim, it is the axis of the foreign within ourselves. And in reality, antiquarian scholarship too reminds us of the cargo cults, though this is a more Gnostic approach than the former, picking up traces of old materialities and worldviews in the pursuit of knowing rather than believing. A few years ago, I had the honor of participating in the excavation of a possible pre-Christian sacred site at Tordnese on the Isle of Tysnes in West Norway. Though the dig yielded no results worth bragging about, Tysnes itself is a powerhouse of ancient monuments and hosts the highest concentration of sacred place names in the entire country. It probably served as a large regional holy place. In 1915, archaeologists excavated a peculiar mound on the very headland of Tordnese. It was evidently not for burial, as there were no human remains. A stone-lined square chamber with an altar-like construction in the middle lay beneath a thick, lipid-rich layer of black earth containing shells, clams, and animal bones. It was clear that this was either a garbage dump or a place of sacrifice. 
It was only recently discovered that Todnesse is actually the center of an extremely rare and peculiar solar phenomenon. First, the sun disappears behind certain mountains, draping the landscape in shadow. Then the sun reappears between certain peaks, casting a concentrated ray of sunlight on one single spot in the landscape, that very mound at Todnesse. This occurs not only during the liminally charged winter and summer solstices, both of them, but the spring and autumn equinoxes as well. An almost unbelievable coincidence, all things considered. And considering the altar in the middle of the square structure, altars are, of course, devices intended for broadcasting. They are antennas. In this case, there is even a frequency. A transmission from the stars that comes on fixed and sacred times of the year. But how do I make the signal sing? I am haunted by the petitions of stanza 144 in the mythological poem Hawamol. Waste to where skal, to where skal, to where skal. Westu hue freista skal, westu hue bidia skal, westu hue bluta skal, westu hue senda skal, westu hue soa skal. Do you know how to write? Do you know how to interpret? Do you know how to color? Do you know how to test? Do you know how to ask? Do you know how to offer? Do you know how to send? Do you know how to sacrifice? Sadly, I do not. And it's not because I haven't tried. The gods of the Vikings have long since gone silent. The signal is lost. Only the cargo cult remains. So I stand at the mound, pulling my hair out like a futurist at the base of a radio tower in the wake of a nuclear blast. But for thousands of years, Viking tradition consisted of an unbroken line of meaningful cultic expression, one that was under no circumstance less real or less legitimate than the observances of a Catholic mass or the devotion of a Muslim engaged in Friday prayer. We can easily imagine a Norse polytheist meeting the gaze of a statue in a temple with the same reverence and awe that a Hindu might feel standing face to face with an image of Ganesha. Even though the line is broken, the images have faded and their voices have turned to static. Unknown gods are gods still. On a wooden stick found in a 9th century Viking ship from Oseberg, a runic inscription known simply by its catalogue number N137 reads Little Wism. It is commonly interpreted as Old Norse Little Wismadr which we may translate to man knows little, or, if you prefer, that man is an imbecile. The human mind is always recognizable even when it puzzles and perplexes us. To many people it can be hard to look beyond the corny stereotypes about the Vikings and so they fail to notice and appreciate the colorful worldview. But if they do dare to look beyond, they may find that this worldview is utterly psychedelic and burlesque to put it in modern terms. I have argued, and always will, 
that Norse art has more in common with Salvador Dali than Greek sculpture, being more surrealist than classical, and I think it is a great crime that this fact has been ignored in the romanticism of the modern era. This art, of course, must on some level reflect the inner schemes of the Norse mind. Norse cosmology is perhaps best described as a conglomerate of spheres, and the most common cosmic denominator is Heimr, meaning home. There are numerous such homeworlds in Norse mythology, and they are often associated with core populations of certain mythological entities and races, though it is not always so clear-cut. While many illustrators draw simplified maps where all these worlds are fixed around the central axis of the world tree Yggdrasil, I think this is a mistake that fails to take into account that Norse cosmology is full of apparently contradictory information about the location and number of these worlds. Point being, that Norse cosmology does not work like regular geography and can only be visualized as such symbolically or by very gross oversimplification. Where the gods live varies. The gods sometimes reside beyond the sea, underwater, in the heavens, or even below the earth. Sometimes these contradictions exist in one and the same source, so they seem unlikely to be variations of separate canonical beliefs. Some creatures can move from one world to the next with ease, but humans as good as never. For the most part, this is retained in heroic and legendary texts, where the protagonist, who always has some kind of superhuman capability, stumbles into various other worlds by accident. In the fantastic tale of Thorstein Bayarmagen, the hero jumps in a river and pops out of a waterfall in Elfland, spending the liminal phase not swimming, but wading as through smoke. In another story, the legendary shield maiden Hervor uses incantations to raise her father from the dead. Her words tear a flaming rift in the veil separating the dead from the living. It seems to me I am standing between worlds, she says, as the barrows of the cemetery open like gateways between dimensions. The subjectivity in Norse cosmic travels and the incongruous, incidental nature of the cosmic journey paints a picture of Norse cosmology that reminds us less of Gulliver's travels and more of jumping through wormholes. The English word world is the same as Old Norse werold, which oddly does not refer to the physical space at all, but means the age of humanity. Welcome to the Twilight Zone. The Eddic poem Wolluspo states that the gods created man and woman as an act of love, giving us lifeblood and the likeness of the gods themselves, as well as cognitive abilities. For example, we receive the spirit, Ond, which is etymologically connected with Andi, meaning to breathe. In the very enchanted Old Norse worldview, it was believed that the spirit could come and go through respiratory organs, which were also vulnerable points of entry for supernatural attacks. People of great magical power were believed able to project their spirit into the world, not completely unlike how you would send out a drone today. Such psychic emanations are frequently referred to as hugr, meaning mind. In other words, Scandinavians used to believe that the consciousness was fully able to split from the physical body, travel around, sometimes on its own accord without the individual actually knowing, either accidentally or on purpose. 
the Icelandic medieval chronicler Snorri Sturluson gives an odd account of the god Odin, stating that when he engaged in shapeshifting, his body lay as if dead or sleeping, while he roamed the world in the shape of a fish, bird, snake, or other such animal. Similar accounts are given of later Sami ritual specialists, the Nuaidi, who project their mind outside of their body to traverse the geographies of the other world, which is conveniently comparable to astral projection. In both cases, the spirit emanation can enact thoughts and fantasies. Several sagas even allude to wet dreams and sometimes full-on supernatural nighttime assaults, always against men, were caused by strong-minded female magicians, which is expressive of the ambivalent yet immense power of female sexuality in Norse society. In other words, that your ideas really manifest and change the physical world around you. The general idea was also common in later Norwegian folklore, where thinking intense thoughts about someone was believed to cause them everything from heart attacks to the common cold. In pre-Christian Norse society, poetry was the most appreciated art. The mead of poetry was a magical intoxicant that caused the emergence of poetry within culture, and also ties in with the strange and difficult to translate term, Udr. This was another property given to humanity upon their creation, according to the Wallisbor. The meaning of Udr is convoluted and depends on the context. As a noun, it may seem to mean mind, reason, or thought, but also poetry, inspiration, as well as rage and storm. As an adjective, it means insane, dizzy, ecstatic, possessed, and violent, rushing, sudden, fierce. Udr, though a latent property in all humans, is primarily associated with two things, creative genius, which implies self-control, and rambling lunacy, which is clearly marked by its distinct lack of control. Norse poets, or skalds, when describing their work, will sometimes compare their crafts to boat building, which is an extremely slow to learn and demanding skill. Then in the next moment they will say that the poem is their vomit, something impulsive that s simply spews out of their mouths. But in reality, Norse Gallic poetry was anything but vomit. Poems were a grammatical cipher in poetic meter, obscured by multi-layered metaphors that were mythological and often quite surreal. It much more resembles a programming language than slam poetry. The poet Bragi Bodason calls himself Yggs Olbera, Old Skapmoda, effectively, I am the bartender of Odin, the terrible one. I am the creating deity of Udr. This is a play on words. The poem is the Udr, but the poet is also broadcasting the qualities of Udr, metaphorically presented as an intoxicating beverage that the audience quote-unquote drinks with their ears. The god of poetry himself, Odin, embodies this coincidence of opposites. His name literally means the Odr. In this sense, art is not only a means of creative expression in Norse paganism, but the technology of divine commentary, spewing out contagious, mimetic content. In a sense, the concepts described above reveal how we digest the world around us and add to it through our collective attention. 
we may characterize over as both the product and the result feeding into itself. Though certainly not the same concept as the noosphere per se, they both represent an ancient entity that is repeatedly circulated and nourished by human consciousness and agency. While the noosphere is not at all an ancient term, it accurately captures tendencies and suspicions about reality, even from archaic societies. I firmly believe that it is at the intersection of past, future, and present where humanity stands the best chance of figuring out its position in the universe. To better understand our true potential, if you will. However, we can only attain this future as long as we sustain the channels of inner and outer communication, articulated in robust traditions and technologies. But if all goes to shit, at least our minds will manifest in spectral form among the stars, if only as faint waves of electromagnetic radiation. Thank you for listening to the Brute Noise Podcast, where we walk backwards to develop new cybernetic strategies of making the archaic tangible to the future. I have cut open the sacrificial calf and read its liver to the supercomputer oracle hidden far below the Dovga mountains. The prophecy says that at least some of you are in the market for an amazing Brutnor shirt, which we happen to sell at the Brutnor's Teespring store, accessible through a link in the show notes of this very episode, as well as on Brutnors.com. Beyond that, I would gladly extend my gratitude to each and every patron over at patreon.com forward slash brutenorse for their unyielding and some would even say bloodthirsty support of the Scandi Futurist project. Besides the divine favor that patronage entails, supporters of Brutenorse are guaranteed a spot in the Scandi Futurist warband to come once society finally collapses. This is when we shall take to the highways and establish a new Rugian homeland in the Moselle Valley. Mm, love those Riesling wines. Patrons also get 20% off of Brute Norse merchandise and early access to new episodes. Some even get initiated into the Scandi Futurist mystery cult of the Brute Norse Discord server. So there's no reason not to bash the shit out of that link. You've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast. As always, I am Erik Stolzen, where we walk backwards into the future.
Ich bin nicht mehr so gut. 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 Ich bin nicht meh